So we are here in the end or working towards the end of this series that we launched a year ago. This, uh, this kind of journey that has taken us from verse 1 all the way into chapter 6 of the book of Ephesians. And we have taken it pretty deep. We have uh, not glossed over things. In fact, some of our messages have been over one single verse. We've explored words and we've kind of dug through its nuances and we've been through the, the deep theological trenches and we've been through the difficulty that, that Paul has called believers to in, fa- in the face of living against and in culture and everything in between. It's been a really great journey for me personally, uh, exploring the word this way. But we come to some difficult things and we do teaching like this. The reason expository teaching is not overly popular is because you have to deal with the entirety of Scripture, right? We don't just get to pick our favorite four verses on friendship and do a series on why God wants you to have friends. And not that there's anything wrong with that per se. I mean, Scripture talks about the value of brotherhood and friendship and things like that. But we want you here to be a lover of God's word. Like we want you to have this love affair with it. We want you to know it and for it to spill into your lives and into your hearts and into every part of your existence and being. And so the only way we know to do that is to get you immersed in it. And so we love to teach through it, uh, verse by verse, moment by moment, and we run into hard things along the way. In fact, the past five weeks have been just that. They've been hard. Um, They've been powerful and I think wonderful, but they've been hard. We've explored this little mini-series tucked in Ephesians And we've talked about families, and we've talked about husbands and wives and children and parents. We've talked about marriage. And the reason this is hard is because these are definitions that relate to a beautiful created order that the world around us is trying to explode. The world around us is telling us that the biblical definitions of things are no longer the definitions of things, and therefore we need to subject ourselves to what is popular in culture. Marriage is not necessarily the way God designed it, or husbands, or wives, or males, or females, or all these things are subjective to culture's impression. And we've explored them in depth, and we've talked about the idea of wives submitting to husbands, and husbands loving wives as Christ loves for church, and we've talked about the sanctity and the beauty of marriage, and we've defined what that looks like from a biblical perspective. We've talked about the challenge of raising children and how children are called to obey their parents and parents are not called to exasperate or anger their children, but there's this unification of family by which God will show the entire world the love of Jesus. The past five weeks have been hard. They've been good. They've been hard. And then we come to this passage at the beginning of chapter 6. And this passage, as I alluded to during announcements, is where Paul begins to refer to the relationship between slaves and masters. And on one hand, you can kind of tuck it into this rules for marriage and family part of life. Because truthfully, when we're talking about this context, slaves and masters, in this way, there is a household connection. I'll get into that in a moment. But I intentionally am pushing it outside of that little mini-series because Paul treats it differently than he does the others. And there's a reason he does that. Um, And we're going to be exploring that today. So this one stands on its own, and this one is hard. And it's hard because it uses words that are hard to use, right? It uses words like slave. And for us, rightly so, using a term like that brings to mind the atrocious injustices that have happened throughout history, and especially in our own history in this country, um, in the past couple hundred years, right? We all have those ideas and understandings about the atrocious nature of slavery and the things that went on. And so we cannot hear that word without immediately tying it to those things. 
And so to even say it and talk about it becomes really difficult, right? Because we all have things that are tied to those words, and rightly so. But that doesn't mean we get to skip it, and it doesn't mean that we don't have to wrestle with it, and we don't have to define it and understand it. But it also means that we don't get to easily sweep it away by saying things like, well, that's just not what the Bible, not really talking about the same type of thing. There's a yes and no answer to that question, and it's complicated. And so I want to say a few things about this topic before we actually get into there, right? So here's what I told Brandon this morning. I go, this is perhaps one of the most difficult sermons I've ever kind of wrestled with and wrote. It's taken hours and hours. I've crumpled up papers and started again and done all kinds of things because to really wrestle with it and to really address it, we have to name and say a few things. And so this sermon this morning is going to be, well, it's, I'm going to do too much, number one, and it's going to be all over the road, number two, and there's going to be like 80 points in three different sections, number three. And it reminds me of this great movie that I watched as a kid, which some of you may remember. It's this old movie with Chevy Chase called Funny Farm. Does anybody remember that movie? Now, I'm old, right? And most of you in here are not that old. But back in the day, in the 80s or whatever, there was this movie called Funny Farm. And Chevy Chase moves out to the country with his wife to become an author. And he got an advance on a book deal, and he goes to write this book. And he spends all this time writing this book. And he gets to the first three chapters, something like that. And he takes it to his wife and he says, I got to the first three chapters. I want you to read this and tell me what you think. And he basically hands it to her and he stares at her while she reads it, right? They're in this little cabin and he's like, what do you think? What do you think? She's reading to it. She gets through it and you can tell she's like trying to figure out how to say in her most kind words, like, good job. But she's just detesting what she read, right? So she's like, oh, it's, uh, yeah, it's, you know, it's, uh, uh." he's like, no, you can tell me. I need it. And, And then she just bursts into tears. And he goes, what's wrong? And he goes, well, she goes, I don't even know what I'm reading. She goes, in the first chapter alone, there's a flash forward and two flash backwards. And on page 13, there's a flash sideways, right? And she goes to this whole thing where she's like, this is a colossal disaster. And so he takes it and he throws it in the fire, right? And then they have this big thing. And then he tries to get it out. It's a, it's a great movie if you ever get a chance to watch it. Probably has way too many inappropriate things in there that I should say you go watch it. But the movies in the 80s, they were, they were a different kind of PG back then. So... That's what I feel like I'm doing today. There's like four flash forwards, a flash sideways, and I throw the whole thing in the fire because there's so much happening here that I feel like we need to address. So I'm going to say that up front. I'm going to tell you just to bear with me, and we're going to try and work through this together, and you're going to have to focus because there's a lot happening that I'm going to say before we get into the text, once we're in the text, and then on the other side of it. So there's a few things I want to mention before we even begin, um, and that's about this idea of slavery and the challenges that this topic brings about, um, because the Bible actually does talk about it quite a bit. In fact, it talks about it in a lot of different ways. Uh, if you get into Exodus chapter 21, actually there are rules for slaves and servants and households within the Jewish community. There are places that address it, even this text we're going to look at today where Paul addresses it. But nowhere do we see this expressed, explicit kind of condemnation of it where Scripture comes out and says that everybody who has slaves should immediately emancipate them, obliterate it, and throw it away. And so it begs a really important question that a lot of people have asked over the years, and that question is this, is the Bible pro-slavery? And that question is actually not without merit because of what I just mentioned. Because the Bible does talk about it, but the Bible does not in its form expressly deny it or throw it out or tell you to, that it's an abomination and to rid ourselves of it. 
And so you have to ask the question, and I think the question is fair. But like all things, if we explore Scripture in its whole, we're going to see a bigger and better story. And so the answer to that question is unequivocally no. The Bible is not pro-slavery. The Bible is actually very anti-slavery for ways that we're going to see today that I'm going to show you. But I want to mention a couple just before we start so that we're all on the same page, at least in knowing these truths, right? And we know that the Bible is uh, is fully anti-slavery because of a couple of things. Well, there's actually like 14 sermons here, but I'm just going to drop a few of these things here because I want to say them out loud. And the first is that we know that the Bible is strongly and fully anti-oppression all the time. So when you look at Scripture as a whole, from anywhere, from Genesis to Revelation, the Bible is always against oppression. It's a call to fight for those that can't fight for themselves. It's a call to fight for those who are oppressed, who are pushed down, who have no voice, to fight for the widow, to fight for the, those that are uh, lost in culture, bullied, overrun by authority. The Bible is fully anti-oppression. So we have this idea. We also have the idea that God's heart is always that man shall be free. Right? Everywhere we see in Scripture, there is a movement where God desires men to be free, to have their hearts freed by truth, to have their lives freed um, from an entirety, to not be bound by anything other than Christ alone. So we know that to be true. We also know that the type of slavery that we're talking about to, in our culture, and we refer to in the 18th and, or the 17th and 18th century that took place across a lot of Europe and throughout our own country, is actually not predominantly what Scripture is referring to when it talks about slavery. And we're going to get into this in depth here in a little bit. We're talking about two different things. However, that's not always the case. That's really important to say. Because it'd be really easy to just go, and I read a lot of people that have written these things over the years that say, hey, when we talk about slavery, we're not talking about the same thing. The word doulos in the Greek actually means bondservant. And so when Paul talks about slaves, he's not talking about slaves like we're thinking slaves. He's talking about slaves in terms of bondservants that are there because they're working off a debt or they're indentured. And the answer to that is that is predominantly true, but not always. Slavery in the Roman Empire was horrific and it was real and it was awful and we're going to get to that in a moment and so we can't just wash this away by saying that but we do need to say it because it is important because when you look at the mosaic law that's played out in chapter 21 of exodus we're not talking about the same things we are talking about a different idea of slavery in which people did operate in terms where they would put themselves into debt and they would work off a debt to acquire land to do something else to earn extra money, and that relationship in Scripture was to be treated in a very specific way with humanity and dignity and all these other things. And so predominantly, we're not talking about the same things. So when Paul says slaves do this and masters do this, 95% of that is not talking about what we're thinking when we think about slavery in the 18th century, 19th century, and the atrocities that have been committed and are being committed around the world. But that is in there, and I think it's important that we say it because we cannot whitewash these things away with this idea that the Bible is just not saying that. The Bible actually speaks to all these things. So I want to say that up front, that the Bible is absolutely not that. In fact, what we're going to see today is that Paul actually separates slavery from the created order of things. He does not speak to the importance or value or ideology of the relationship. He actually directs both slaves and masters back to Christ without crediting the relationship as having any value at all. He just points them to Jesus. 
And that's where we're going to spend most of our time. Um, So if you've got your Bible, I want you to bear with me and open up to Ephesians chapter 6. And we're going to be in verses 5 through 9 this morning. Um, And we're going to do a couple of things, right? I'm going to ask two major questions. I'm going to ask, what did this passage mean for the first century slave and the first century master? Like, how were they hearing that and what are they to hear? I think that's important in its context. The second question we're going to ask is, what should we be hearing or what do we need to pay attention to today? Right? Like, what does that mean for you and I? What are the bigger principles that are at play here? And those are the two questions that we're going to tackle um, after we read this text. But even before we get there, I'm going to give you some more caveats, but let's read the text first. If you've got your Bible, let's open it up and then let's pray. Lord, what a joy it is to have the Word of God in our hand. To not be threatened by wrestling with it and talking about difficult things. To not be afraid of it and to do it in the safety and context of a community that believes that your word is true and powerful and authoritative and that it speaks to all things. And at the same time to recognize that throughout history, humanity has created and done atrocious and awful things that are so contrary to your movement and so contrary to the very word of God and so contrary to the very nature of God that you use words like hate and detest and despise. And to Lord, and Lord, to admit and to know that many of those things had been done by fallen humans in the name of a God who did not and does not represent them. We're broken people. And we're deeply, deeply sinful. And we have made and continue to make colossal, colossal mistakes. However, you are a God who redeems. You are a God who rebuilds. You are a God who restores. And you are a God who is never anything other than holy. You are immovable. You are a fortress. And you are all that is good. And so, Lord, when we take our lives and our actions, and may we rest them upon your truth. So this morning, teach our hearts. Lord, give us grace to hear these words that I speak with with grace, and they're not all going to come out right. Give us charity to approach the subject with each other, but give us a firm heart and foundation to stand on what you say is true. And so, Lord, we turn our time over to you this morning and ask you to teach us. Take a moment in your own heart and just ask the Lord to teach you. Do your best to hear and listen and read along with an open heart. Ask the Lord to teach you something and to speak to you this morning. Take a moment and pray for someone beside you and behind you. Pray that the Lord would do that same thing in them. Pray that he would teach them and instruct them and whisper to their hearts. Lord, we turn our hearts and our lives over to you this morning and ask you to be the great teacher and instructor of our souls. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so let's, let's, let's hear this text out loud, and then I'm going to give you a flash sideways. All right. <laughs> All right, chapter 6, verses 5 through 9. 
Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but like slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord and not men, because you know the Lord will reward everyone for whatever good he does, whether he is slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same manner. <clears throat> Excuse me. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. I read a portion of a sermon that said, well, you know, Paul doesn't even really use the word slaves. He uses the word uh, bondservant, which in the Greek is the word doulos, which truthfully is the exact same word for slave. It's just semantic dance to try and not have to say it out loud. But the truth is, we're going to say it because it's there and it's what it means. It actually means bondservant and it actually means slave in that regard. And so we're going to address it that way. And in order to do that, I want to give you a couple of things, a couple of caveats that I think we need to understand historically in order to really understand this passage correctly. Um, and I think that's important. And so, again, before we get into it, I'm going to give you a little sidestep here to let you hear a few things, um, because I think those things, hearing those things are, are really important. And the first is this. I told you when we first started that you can kind of put one foot into this family household thing. I mean, there's a reason that Paul includes it right after he talks about husbands and wives and marriage and children and parents, because there were a lot of these relationships that were taking place in households. But Paul treats it extremely differently if you're paying attention. So for those of you who have been with us for the past five weeks, you've heard us talk a lot about these relationships between husbands and wives and children and parents. And in both instances, we've referred, and Paul refers to the created order of things. So with husbands and wives, he refers to Genesis 2 when he talks about the created order and the nature of marriage. Genesis 2 talks about how a husband should leave his wife and, or leave his family and cleave unto his wife. And he refers to the created order that marriage is by God's design when one man and one woman, right, submitting themselves fully to Christ, become one in Jesus. It's part of God's created order. We talked about it five weeks ago. We talked about it in depth. When we move on to children and parents, we also talk about the created order of things. Remember, last week we talked about the Ten Commandments. And now the fifth commandment out of Exodus 20 is actually God saying, Children, obey your parents, for this is right. And he refers to the created order of things in which God has established a relationship between children and parents. And children are to engage their parents in that created order. And parents are to love their children in that created order. And there is an order there that parents are called to be the authority in the lives of their children. It is not the government or the schools or the whatever that take your authority. Parents in the created order of God's movement are to raise their kids and to have the authority there. Both of those instances speak directly into the created order. If you just listen to what we read about slaves and masters, there is no mention or addressing of any type of order. No opportunity to say, this is how God established it. This is what God has done. This is how it should be. In fact, and more importantly even, Paul doesn't even go back and address it from a mosaic standpoint in terms of the law. And he could have. There is actually a lot of rules and regulations for these things. If you look at how the Jewish people were to command and live their own lives and conduct and live their own lives, Exodus chapter 1 is full of it. It talks about rules for servants and slaves and households. It tells you how to act within the context of the Jewish community. 
Paul could have said, actually, slaves and masters, pay attention to what Moses said. He doesn't. He doesn't address it as a part of the created order. He doesn't refer back to any of the Mosaic law. Essentially what he does, he takes slaves and masters and he addresses them to themselves in Christ. The master and slave in Christ are in relationship to Christ. By doing this, right, Paul does not give authority or positivity or power to the relationship here. He basically is saying it's not part of the created order. I'm not even going to address the value in the relationship. Instead, what I'm going to do is point you both to Christ. That's what he's doing here. It's very different. You've got to pay attention to it, but it's there. He does not give credit to the ideology or to the relationship or speak to it in a positive way. He just simply says, focus on Christ. Pay attention to Jesus because you both, and we're going to explore all these in a moment, both are slaves to Jesus alone. And that's important. Paul does not treat it the same way. So we don't look at slaves and masters the way we look at husbands and wives and children and parents. It doesn't carry the same power. It doesn't have the same relationship. It's not in the same created order. Paul doesn't even give it the same kind of honor in terms of it as a relationship at all. He just simply acknowledges that it's there, and he points both to Christ. Okay, that let it sit on its own. The second thing I want you to see is the pervasive nature of slavery in the Roman world. It's really hard for us to understand this, right? Because those of us that, have, that are being raised now, we don't really have an understanding at all about the idea of slavery in terms of its pervasive nature, right? We think it was something that took place in the past. We're still paying a lot of those consequences, and, and, our, and our culture is still really reeling from the sins of our past. That is very true. But slavery is still a huge problem across the world. I'm not even going to be able to get into that today. I mean, it's a monster problem. I'm not even going to be able to get into it. But what I want you to understand is what a, what a pervasive thing it was in the first century. You know, I, I've read a lot of different stats and things and whatnot, but the highest that I read is that it is estimated that in the Roman world in the first century, there were as many as 60 million slaves. Now think about this for a moment. How can that be? 60 million, it's crazy. How can that be? Think about it. The Roman movement was about... Conquering an occupation. That's how the Roman world expanded, right? Little history lesson. They would move into a new land. They would absolutely decimate that army. They would then haul most everyone that had any value off into slavery. The women would become part of other households. And the men, even if they were professionals, scientists, teachers, whatever, doctors, they would be hauled off and spread across the Roman Empire and enslaved. And there were doctors and teachers and people that were enslaved in other places because they were a part of a people group that was conquered. And if you decentralized that people group, they couldn't uprise. We actually even see this happening with the, with the Jewish people in Scripture. That the Romans scattered them. It's how Philip ends up in Samaria. They scatter them. Because what happens when you, you get a central people that are, that are kind of mobilized and you get some leaders in there? They begin to develop a revolution. And that revolution was a problem to the Roman Empire because they couldn't leave enough troops behind because they were moving on. So they would leave a fragment and they would decentralize the population and enslave them. It has been said that every actual legal Roman citizen probably had multiple slaves because they were legal and they were Roman and they were better than everybody else. And when they conquered a people, they took that people as their own. And that picture of slavery that was happening in the Roman Empire was actually really, especially towards the latter part of the first century, really awful. 
In fact, you can go and read Roman law. It's written, we can see it, that Roman slaves were treated as chattel. And that word actually comes from an old English word that means cattle because that's exactly what it meant. It meant that people were property. And they could be traded and bartered with and sold and treated however you wanted to. And that's the form of slavery that most of us are accustomed to talking about when we think about it in terms of our own experience here. That people, people could be owned and traded and manipulated and used by other people. They were property. They had no rights. And it was generational. And that was happening in the Roman Empire. And it was horrific, and it was an abomination, and it was then, and it is now. But it's important to mention that it is real. Now, that type of slavery, though, was not predominantly what was happening in Scripture, but it was there. And it's not out of the realm of possibility to think that in the church in Ephesus, which is a Greek and Roman-occupied area, in which all the believers there are not great little Jewish people that grew up reading the Torah. They are converts that have been saved, right? That there were people that were experiencing both sides of that slavery coin. Both the, the kind that may have been mentioned predominantly in Scripture, some kind of bondservant or someone that's working off some debt or someone that's going to be released whenever their employment term is what, over, and then those that have been conquered, those that were a threat, those that were property. They're both real, and to pretend that they're not is, is a disservice to the word. Slavery was predominant in the Roman Empire. It was, in fact, it was so predominant that Paul just kind of breathes it out, and actually a lot of other authors kind of breathe it out as if it just existed, which seems crazy to us, but it was true. The third thing I want to mention here in this little flash sideways is that both slaves and masters in this context were part of the Christian community. They're part of the church. Mind-blowing, right? But think about it. We talked about this the past couple of weeks. Paul stops and he addresses wives. He stops and he addresses husbands. He knows that his letter is being written to the, the ecclesia, the gathering, the community, and that those people would be sitting in the room listening as the leaders read this letter or circulated amongst the house churches. And he stops and he addresses wives because he knew there are wives listening. And he stops and addresses husbands because he knew they were sitting in the room. He goes on and stops and addresses children. Children, obey your parents. You think Paul's just throwing that into the air? He knows they're going to be sitting amongst the people because they're part of the Christian community. He addresses parents, and he addresses slaves and masters in the same way because he knows that in that community and in that room and in that place, there were both. Neither were excluded from the community, which is interesting, right? He addresses slaves in the same manner that he addresses masters with dignity, with respect, the same way that he addresses husbands and wives and even children who most people didn't even speak to in those days. They were there, and they were a part of it, and we can't pretend they weren't. So we've got this, this picture, right, this thing that's unfolding here that we have to address and keep in our context. And so I want to mention all those things because I think to talk about it in the other way is not fair. So that being said, what does our text say and mean to those that would be hearing it in those days? So what we're going to do, we're going to take two questions, right, two real questions. What would this have meant to a slave and master in the first century? And what, is it, what are we supposed to do with this? Like, and then I'm going to tuck a little something in between that I need to say again. So we'll just kind of keep going. 
So here I am in the first century, right? I'm a slave or I'm a master, and I'm, I'm using the word because it's there. What do I do? What, how do I hear these words? Well, listen to what Paul says directly, and we'll, we'll address the slaves first because that's what Paul does. He addresses them directly. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. So the first thing he says is, slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and sincerity of heart. So we don't know how any of these folks found themselves in the relationship that they did. Most likely, it was probably both scenarios. It was probably a scenario where families had a household servant that they cared about and that lived with them and they nurtured them and, and, and gave them money and they essentially worked for them. Um, there's probably that pretty picture. There was also probably the picture that was a little less pretty. Um, and then there was probably the picture that was awful. They're probably all tucked in there somewhere, if we're being really honest. And Paul addresses these slaves that he speaks directly to, and he says, I want you to obey your master with sincerity of heart and with respect. And how does he say to do that? He says, you do that by the way that you would obey Christ. Now, he doesn't say that your master is Christ, and he doesn't say you should treat them as Jesus. There's some type of Lord over you. He just says that when you obey those that have earthly authority over you, do it as though you were obeying Christ. In other words, your master is fully Jesus. And in the situation that you are in, obey like you would obey Christ. You know, relatively simple. Still hard to hear, still hard to say, but that's what he says. He goes on to say, obey them not only when uh, they're watching, when the, where he says, or when the favor of their eye is upon you, right? So obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but like slaves of Christ doing the will of God from your heart. So he says, obey them not just when they're watching, right? That's the, that's the ease of any relationship with authority is when someone's watching me and I'm supposed to do something, I, I do it with all my heart. Like I want them to see that I'm working really hard at it, right? If you've ever had or have children, like this is the classic way they do chores, right? When you're watching, it's like they're vacuum monsters and they're amazing. And when you turn your eye, it's like they just sit out. Because they don't care about vacuuming or whatever it is. They just want you to know they did it. And so they only do what you can see, right? It's just easy. This similar concept, which is like, listen, you, you can't obey and live that way, right? You can do things just when people are watching for their favor. But the reality is God sees and knows everything. And so everything that you do, just do it as though you're working wholeheartedly for the Lord. Like, who cares about who is your master or your authority? Like, your true master is Christ. And so do it in a way that honors honors him. Very similar response, right? You, you do this in a way that honors Jesus. Well, then the third thing he says is serve, verse 7, serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord and not men. So not only are you supposed to obey them with love and respect and sincerity of heart, and not only are you supposed to do it in a way even when their eye isn't on you, but do it with all of your heart as if you had no earthly master at all and as if you were serving the Lord. So whatever you're doing in these moments do it all for Jesus. And this is what Paul does, and he does the very same thing in all three of those commands. He points them directly back to Christ. He actually points them away from the authoritative relationship on earth and towards the authoritative relationship in heaven. So no matter what situation they found themselves in, the answer to the slave that Paul is speaking is, serve the Lord. Serve the Lord. 
Serve the Lord when no one's watching. Serve the Lord when they, someone tells you to do something. Serve the Lord with your whole heart. He is your full and true master. And he adds there in verse 8, which we're going to get to in a moment, because the Lord will reward, he will reward the good that you do, whether you are slave or free, which we talked about more in a moment. But he says, God will reward you. No matter who you are, do good. Serve wholeheartedly, right? So you look at this and you say, hey, it's some pretty good principles, still kind of hard to swallow in the context, right? Because he's basically saying, slaves, obey the people on earth that are in charge of you. And we know not all those relationships are good. But he does say it. And that's what he says. And if you're a first century slave sitting in a community of church, gathered here just like this, this is what you're hearing. Don't worry about the earthly. Focus on Jesus. He is your heavenly master. Serve and do whatever you do as you're working fully and totally for him, not for anyone else. God sees what you do all the time, and he will reward you. That's the voice that comes from Paul to the oppressed, and maybe not so the oppressed, right? That's the complicate, complication with this passage. But then he speaks directly to masters, right? So he doesn't just say, slaves, do what you're told. He doesn't say that at all. He actually says, slaves, do these things because you're honoring the Lord in everything that you do. And then things get real interesting, because then he addresses masters, which is another horrible and awful and terrible word to use, and nobody wants to use it. But I tried to look for a better one in the Greek, and there's not one. It actually means that. It just means master, someone who is mastering over someone else. It's an ugly, awful word, but it's there. And we have poisoned it, and rightly so, probably, in our culture because of what it's tied to. And it's hard to divorce that from here. And he addresses it, and he uses that word. And that word is hard, but that word is there. And this is what he says. He says, masters and masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Well, that's interesting. How did he just tell slaves to treat their masters? To serve them, to obey them, to honor them, to fear them with sincerity of heart? to serve them even when they're not watching, and to serve them wholeheartedly. And he looks at the masters and he says this, Masters, treat your slaves the same way. He doesn't say, Masters, be nice to your slaves. He says, serve them. Love them. Honor them. Fear them. The relationship of reciprocity is really powerful here. Does that sound like Paul's condoning slavery? The type of slavery that imagined in our minds that was unfolding across history with inhumane treatment and the owning of property, a chattel slavery. Does that sound like that? You know what it sounds like? It sounds a lot more like a husband and wife. Wives, submit and love your husbands. Husbands, love your wife as Christ loves the church. Now, I'm not saying those relationships are the same because they're not. Paul intentionally separates them by not talking about their created order, but he basically points both back to the exact same thing, which is we are all fully servants to Christ, and we are called to love and serve each other in the Christian community, period. I don't care where you're from or what you do, husband, wife, child, parent, slave, or free. All right? That's the reciprocity of the relationship with the believer. And I'm going to tell you in a moment why Christianity doesn't condone, but actually implodes and blows up slavery through its theology. We'll get to that in a moment. So he says this reciprocity in relationship. Masters, treat your slaves the same way. You cannot read that and say, masters, be nice to your slaves, or employers, be nice to your employees. He says, treat them in the same way, and you got to go back and read what that is. And he's very clear. 
Obey your earthly masters. In other words, obey your slaves with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey your slaves not only to gain their favor when they are watching, but also when they're not watching. And whatever you do, serve wholeheartedly for your serving the Lord. If Paul says to do the same thing and treat them the same way, then the only way you can do that is to read those words back to each other. Master and slave, the reciprocity of that relationship implodes a lot of the idea of slavery. But keep going. He goes on to say, Do not threaten them, since you know he who is both master, their master and yours. Do not threaten them, period. It's interesting, right? I read a couple of sermons over this week that have addressed this idea that what we're really talking about here is employee and employee relationships in which you employed people and, you know, they, they were glad to be there and, and household husbands and families paid for slaves and they were more like servants and all this and they whisk all that away and they say the way that Christians treated uh, their slaves was, was kind. It wasn't anything like what was happening in the 18th century and, and that's all pretty nice. It's probably fully untrue because Paul is not going to say to the church that has masters in it who had slaves, do not threaten them if no one in the church is threatening them. The same way he's not going to look at kids and say, obey your parents, if every single child in the room was already obeying their parents. He's not wasting the breath. He's not saying, husbands, submit to your wives. If they have submitted fully to their husbands, he's not saying, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. If husbands were already loving their wives that way, somebody in that community was acting in a worldly way and living in a way that was so contrary to God's word that Paul says, you cannot threaten someone else like that. Don't do it. Don't threaten them, period. Do you know how against this would fly in the face of the Roman idea of shadow slavery? They were your property, right? That's the way the Roman law read. As horrific and awful as that is, that was the Roman law. And you could treat those people however you wanted. And we're not talking about a specific race of people. We're talking about anyone that wasn't Roman that was conquered. They were yours because you were a Roman. And you think that those people, those Romans, those folks, were not trickling their way into and around the Christian community as Saved, newly saved people? They were. I promise you they were. Because Paul writes all these letters to address these newly saved people and all their broken ways they were trying to bring Christianity and their own worldly culture together. In fact, every epistle he writes pretty much addresses the implosion that that is. So he says, right, very clearly, do not threaten. Not even a word, period. And then he says this. And he basically says, you can't threaten them because, well, your master and their master are the same. You both are subservient to Christ. And we'll get to that in a moment. Finally, the last thing he says to masters is this. He says that Jesus is both their master and yours. He's in heaven. He says this, and there is no favoritism in him. So what that basically means is that Jesus is utterly impartial. He's utterly impartial. 
There is no favoritism in Christ, meaning there is no slave or free. There is no hierarchical relationship. Someone is not better than other. There is not a Roman that's better than a Greek. There is not a Roman that's better than a Jew. There's not a Roman that's better than any one of these folks. There is no one that sits in this room that is better than another. Masters, you are not better than your slaves. Jesus, who is your master, utterly is impartial and shows no favoritism, and therefore you cannot. So on one hand, we read that first section about slaves, and we're thinking, hey, man, Paul's, he's kind of saying this is okay, telling slaves to just kind of do what their masters say. It's not really what he's doing, actually. He actually says, worry not about your earthly relationships, but instead in how you relate in relationship to your heavenly Father. And then he addresses the other side of the coin very harshly. And he says, masters, You treat them the same way that I just told them to treat you. Fear and respect and honor and obedience. Because you both serve the same master. And he shows no favoritism and you can't either. In other words, to the church gathered here, there is no slave or free. Now this is really powerful, right? Because Paul's letters actually all echo this. If you're familiar with any of them, right? He speaks to it in every single one of them. Colossians, I'll read a verse out of Galatians in just a moment. Even his letter to Philemon. Philemon had a slave named Onesimus. We talked about this. I don't even remember when it was. We taught the whole book of Philemon. Philemon ran away because he was being, or Onesimus ran away because he was being mistreated. And Paul's entire letter to Philemon, the believer, is, listen, you not only receive him back, but you do it as a brother. He's not a slave. Because in Christ, he is a brother. And we're going to get into that more in just a moment. So this is where I take another flash sideways. So this is what Paul's saying to, to slaves, to masters. He basically levels the relationship. But this is where I think it's really important to stop for just a moment and say this. And say, there's a bunch of really amazing and powerful theological ways that Christian, Christianity and Christian theology um, implode and destroy the idea and concept and ideology of slavery. Um, this passage, in no way, as we talk about it, actually supports it. It actually pushes it against the created order. Paul doesn't even address it as having any value at all, and he levels the playing field completely. But there's a couple of ways that I want you to see that, that slavery is not only not condoned by, by Christianity, it's actually imploded by its theology. And the first, and I'm just going to mention these kind of quickly because I want to, want to finish this up, but, but the first in all of those is that we talk about this idea of common lordship, right? So the idea simply being is that both slave and master have the same lord, there is not a different God for different people, whether those are people groups or races or classes. Every single human heart is adored and loved and created by God and redeemable by Christ and has the same Lord. Slave and free are both called to the exact same thing. He says it super clearly. You both serve the same master. Christian theology implodes a hierarchical structure that says any one person is subservient to any other. It actually says that every single beating human heart has a common lordship in Christ when we surrender our lives to him, and therefore we are all one. And Christ is our Lord, period. So we have this idea of common lordship. We have this idea that I mentioned again about reciprocity and relationship. 
Scripture is full of this idea that we are called to love people in the same manner that Christ loved us. Right? We even talked about it at length when we talked about husbands and wives. We think the idea of submitting to your husband is somehow this subservient laying down thing where I do something and he's this big thing and Lord up here. And that's a complete misread of that text. If you go and listen to what we talked about weeks ago, you will see that the reciprocity in the relationship is the mutual laying down of our lives within a created order of how God orchestrated the family. He says it so plainly here that you can't deny it, can't deny it. The reciprocity of relationship obliterates the idea of slaves and masters. If a, if a master is to treat his slave in the same way that a slave is to love and serve and respect and fear and honor his master, there is no relationship there. There is no slavery. You cannot read that and think, oh yeah, that relationship exists. If a slave is called in these verses, right, to honor and respect and fear and obey his master. And if a master is called to honor and respect and fear and obey his slave, there is no relationship of slavery. And that is what Paul is getting at. In his subtle way, he's speaking into the pervasive nature of what is culture and saying Christian theology obliterates this relationship. Because what it does is it says there is no one who serves another. We all serve each other. This mutual submission, mutual servanthood, this mutual laying down of our lives, it's the reciprocity of relationship we do because Christ did for us. And then finally, we have this big piece of this theology, which I mentioned a second ago, which is the brotherhood of all believers. In Paul's letters, Colossians, Galatians, Philemon, there is no separation of relationship. Listen to what he says to the church in, the, the church in Galatia. He says this in chapter 3, verse 26. He says, you are all sons of God. He's writing to the church there, right? You're all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you were baptized in Christ, and you have been clothed with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, and you are heirs to his promises. What Paul's saying is that when you give your life to Jesus as part of the Christian community, there is no separation of relationship in which one is subservient to another. There is no Jew and Greek. There's one new family. It's what the entire first part of the letter of Ephesians is about. If you remember our study a year ago, Paul sets this entire letter up to say there are not two people groups here. There are not Jews over here and Greeks over here. We have all been saved and we are one family. So quit your fighting and your ridiculous earthly brokenness and realize that we are one. That same brotherhood believers doesn't just apply to Jews and Greeks. It applies to male and female. He looks at culture and says, men are not better than women. In a culture that predominantly said that was the case, he says that's garbage. You've both been redeemed and saved. You are one people. And he says, there's not slave or free. And that hierarchy relationship doesn't exist. You've both been saved. You are brothers. You are not better than he or her. You are to serve and love them. And Christianity obliterates the relationship that says there is anyone in a hierarchy over another. So you have these 
these powerful theological truths that are at play in these texts that you have to see, that we can't just gloss over, right? That we have this common lordship and this reciprocity of relationship and this brotherhood of believers. It's true and it's there. Okay, all of that to say, what do we do with this? Like, how do we take this? Like, what do we walk away with? What are the principles here? Well, here's something really interesting, I think. Is that I think it's easy to go, well, man, I'm not in either of these categories, and, you know, we know that this is not okay, and so, like, what do we do here? I think Paul does something really interesting by leveling this playing field. He basically says that the principles I'm telling you as slaves and the principles I'm telling you as, as masters are essentially the same. Right? He says, you're one. Serve each other the same way. Love each other the same way. Respect each other the same way. Obey each other the same way. You have the same master. He is in heaven. He shows no favoritism. He is unilaterally and unequivocally just, fair, and righteous. And he shows no favoritism. So what I'm telling to each of you can be joined together in a set of principles that apply to all of us. Not just to the slave and free, but to everybody in the community that's listening. And I want you to pay attention to this, church, because this is exactly what he's saying to us. And there's these principles. There's a couple of them that play here. This is what you and I should probably be hearing. The first one is do everything as though you were doing it for the Lord. It's actually a call to both. Masters are called to treat the slaves in the exact same way, and they're called to serve and do everything that they do as though they were doing it to the Lord and for the Lord. And slaves the same way. The principle here is whatever we do in life, we are called to do in a way that honors Christ. That applies everywhere. It applies at home. It applies when the way that you're serving your wife or you're serving your husband. It applies the way you, you approach school or you approach work. Everything that I have the opportunity today is an opportunity for me to honor the Lord in the way that I live. Because we can do things in two different ways, right? We can do things to accomplish a task and be mad and frustrated and angry about it. We can do things with judgment and ingratitude and frustration in our hearts. It's how most of us serve our spouse, right? Really begrudgingly. We'll do it because I should, but I don't want to. That's why most of our time in, in, in our homes is kind of built around doing things the other one doesn't want to do. Who can stack the last piece of garbage on top before it falls? And if it falls, then you got to take it out, right? Or you can leave... See the honeydew list that you get left, and you can be grudgingly begin to knock those things out. There's a lot of ways that we do this. We kind of undermine and subvert each other. We do this at work all the time also, right? We moan and complain about our boss. We go to lunch, and we talk about them behind their back with all our other employees, and we make fun of them, and we do this. And we go about our day, and we accomplish a task, and the task is just there, and we do it, and we go home, and we, we just kind of move through life. Bigger principle here is that whatever you do, do it for the Lord. There is a way to just go, Lord, I don't really want to do this today, but I'm going to do it because it's a way that I can honor you. And by honoring you, I honor my wife. There's a way that I can go to work today and I can honor you by the way that I speak or don't speak about other people. I can do the work that I have in front of me. I can do the things I have in front of me and I can do them well and I can do them honestly and I can do them perfectly to my ability and not destroy those around me, right? So whatever you do, the principle here is you can do it for the Lord. Same way as if you're an employer. How you work in relationship to your employees 
can honor the Lord. You can treat people as though they were just people that accomplished tasks. You can see them as folks that you can fire, hire, move on, let go, that are expendable at all times. And from a pure business and work standpoint, that may be true. But when you live in a way that honors the Lord, people have value. And how you treat them, speak to them, and speak about them to their face and in front of others actually really matters. The same way it happens at home. The language and the voice that you use with your children at home, does it match the language and voice that you use with your children when they are here? You can ask that question multiple times in multiple different ways, but the concept is simply this. Whatever you do, right, do it as though you were serving the Lord. Nobody wants to really mow the yard, but I can change my heart. And I can do it in a way that honors God and just say, God, I'm not going to complain. I'm just going to do the things in front of me and I'm going to honor you in the way that I do them. I'm going to be grateful that I have a yard to mow. All right? The second principle there that we see is that God is going to reward your good work. You see verse 8 is tucked in there, right? Verse 8 is interesting. He kind of gets to the bottom of the slaves, obey and do these kind of things. And he says, because you know that the Lord will reward everyone for the good that he does. God will reward your good work. There's a saying, right? We've all heard it. No good deed, what? Goes unpunished, right? That's the, that's the phrase. And that phrase is super true because, and what it means is essentially that everything that you do, that you try and do with good, always ends up backfiring. You end up getting punched in the mouth, take it on the chin. You're just trying to help somebody. The next thing you know, you've wasted an entire day and $700 doing something that you didn't want to do in the first place because you were just trying to stop and help somebody. Or you're just trying to be helpful to do this, and everything kind of implodes around you, and you end up getting in trouble for it because everything that you do that you try and do good is just kind of broken. And the reality is that is that's true. It's true because the world is broken and it's full of sinful people, and they will take advantage of your good heart. You will be trying to be kind, and they will take advantage of it. You will give an inch, they will take a mile. It's just the reality. But what Paul says in here in verse 8 is that God sees all of that, and it matters to him. And God will reward your good work. And what we mean by reward there is, well, any number of things. It doesn't mean that God's going to say, hey, good job, here's a raise. And you may not ever get the applause of men, but you most certainly will get the applause of heaven. And so we do those things for good because they're right and because that's who we're called to be in Christ. Not because someone's going to see it and they're going to be nice to us and they're going to give us a five-star review on Google or whatever for our business. We just do it because it's the right thing to do. And we know that our applause will come from our heavenly Father and not our earthly people, and we're okay with that. And God, I'm going to do it because it's just what I should do. And I get to honor you, right? Because I'm going to serve you wholeheartedly. And God, I'll take whatever that reward is from you. And even if it's just a trev, thank you for picking that up. It's good. It's worth it. It's always worth it. And then finally, the last thing that we see here is this idea, this simple idea that our master, your master, my master, is Jesus, period. And the reason this is an important principle is because the world is going to try and sell you a bunch of malarkey. It's going to try and tell you two things. It's going to try and tell you, first and foremost, that the world is your master. That you need to be subservient to whatever that culture and that world says. That when it tells you that something is right, that you need to obey that. And if you don't obey that, it will attempt to belittle you, 
call you intolerant, a bigot, or cancel you. It will do it in any number of ways. But the world will try and railroad you into buying into and bowing down to whatever that worldly master says at the time we should do. It's been doing this to believers for centuries. We're not the first. The reality is culture will rise up. It will push against biblical principles, and it will tell you to obey what is culturally active at that moment. And if you don't, it will attempt to destroy you. Because the darkness hates light. So the world will attempt to destroy that light. It will attempt to extinguish it and put it out, and it will do it any number of ways, and people will throw rocks and stones, and you'll be belittled online for doing something as simple as saying, no, I'm not going to let my children be subject to that. And you will be ridiculed and outcast and pushed around because you obey what we believe to be a creational order that God has established. Or you will say something like, I believe that I'm going to last in this marriage and fight for it even though it would be easier to get out because God calls us to enter into marriage relationships that are fused by him that last a lifetime. So they're worth fighting for as hard as that is. And culture's going to tell you that's ridiculous. If you're not happy, bolt, get out. And you're going to say, I believe scripture has a different picture of marriage and the world's going to throw things at you. It's going to tell you that it's your master. It's going to try and belittle you when you don't agree. The second thing it's going to do, and even worse, is it's going to tell you that you're your own master. The world is going to shout at you and tell you that you only have to obey yourself. Believer, that isn't a truth for you and your own truth. Then you are doing right. And for the believer, that is an atrocious lie. It's an atrocious lie. You are not your own master. You aren't even close. In fact, if you were, and I was, what a nightmare. Jesus is our master. We are subservient and joyfully so to him. He holds creation in the palms of his hand. He breathed life into your lungs. He formed the stars and the earth. He set it in motion and he moves in and through and among you. He holds all things together. And I want to be in charge. I want to pursue what is happy. Do you know that I don't even understand what is, makes me happy today, much less tomorrow? I feel different in this moment than I'm going to feel at 3 o'clock. I'm supposed to be the governor of my own joy? What a nightmare. The reality is, is that I want to serve Jesus. I want to die to myself and say yes to him. Why? Because he knows all and is in all and through all, and he is so good. He is so good. I don't want to be the purveyor of my own destiny. I don't want to be the one that sets my own boundaries. I will destroy myself and everyone around me. Jesus is your master, he is our rock, our firm foundation. He is the anchor in the storm and the joy in the sorrow. He is the one that gives life meaning and purpose. So no matter what the world says, no matter what it shouts at you, and no matter what it tells you, you don't obey them, you're not servant to them, and you're surely not servant to yourself. As a believer, Christ is your master, and it is the greatest joy that we will have. And that is the heart of this matter. The beautiful picture of this table is that Jesus came and did exactly what he calls us to do. He calls us to come and die. 
although he is fully God and fully powerful and omnipotent and omniscient and all these incredible things, he voluntarily laid down his life as a sacrifice. Didn't have to. Could have come in and ruled with authority, an iron fist, demanded creation, did this and did that. But he doesn't. He comes down, he walks this earth humbly and sinlessly, taking the full abuse of creation that he made to demonstrate what a life that lays down for others looks like, to demonstrate what a life that is fully obedient to Christ, what a life that is unilaterally full of non-favoritism and impartial and a life that is fully subservient to one master, and that is God alone, looks like. And this is the model that we have, that not only Christ did this for us, but calls us to do it for one another. On that very night that Jesus was betrayed, the very night that all those that he cared about so deeply would run and flee and take off, on the very night that he would be handed over before he gets put on a mockery of a trial and a sham of a uh, public display, he gathers his disciples They share this Passover meal, and after the meal, they take this bread, and Jesus prays, and he gives thanks for it. And then he says, this this bread is my body, and it is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, after he took the bread, he took the cup, and he said, this cup is my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. This is the new covenant poured out for you. That as long as we take of this bread and this cup, we are proclaiming Christ's death until he comes again. This table is the unifying factor between all believers. At this table, there is no denomination. At this table, there are no races, no hierarchies, no movement. There is no slave nor free, no Jew nor female, no male nor female, nor Jew nor Greek. This is a table that unites all believers from all walks of life. As long as you profess faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, this table is open to you. It's the picture of Christianity itself. Fully open no hierarchy, playing field fully leveled by our own desperate need for a Savior. And Jesus alone is that Savior. This morning, as always, we take communion by means of intinction, which is a fancy way of saying as you come down to one of the stations, either front or the back, take a piece of bread, dip it in the cup, and eat. We encourage you to examine your heart. As Paul says, this is something we shouldn't enter into lightly, but we should take serious the nature and call of this meal. Confess our sins, pour our heart out before God, and then participate in what is the great unifying part of Christianity, part of our faith. We also will have gluten-free down here at the front that you're welcome to partake in. But we encourage you as Don and our worship team lead us in worship to spend some time with the Lord and then come take communion and then remain standing so we can close our time together. I'm going to invite our elders to come down this morning as I pray. Lord, I invite... Well, there's a lot of words today. I'll just start over. It's a lot of stuff, Lord. It's hard. But I'm, I'm utterly and wholly grateful that what you do is you draw us all back to our relationship with you. I'm utterly and hopeful that we hear that message as believers and we rec- recognize clearly that the atrocities and atrociousness that people have committed against each other um, are not only not condoned, but they are fully condemned by Scripture, that you have a beautiful created order and a beautiful relationship in which you call your creation to bow to you 
our Redeemer and our Savior, and to serve one another wholeheartedly the way that you came and died for us. That is the call. And so, Lord, as we take in this meal, may we be reminded that we are nothing without you, that we have the same master as the person next to us or across the aisle or across the street or up and down this place, wherever that may be, that you have unified our hearts and that you draw us together and that we have Jesus. So as we take this meal together, I invite you to examine your hearts and remain standing and let's worship together as a single community unified by a common love for Jesus Christ in which he gave all so that we might be. Amen. Thank you for the cross that you have carried. Thank you for your blood that was shed. Took the weight of sin upon your shoulders and sacrificed your life so I could live. Now nothing is holding me back from you, Redeemer of my soul. Now nothing. and the greatness of your love the kindness and the greatness of your love now nothing is holding me back from you redeemer of my soul now nothing
Jesus, you're the king upon the throne. Thank you for the way you always love me. Now I get to love you in return. Now I get to love you in return. thank you for the incredible nature of this meal, that it is a picture and expression of your love for us, that it is poured out through the grace and favor of Christ alone and no merit of our own, nothing that we've done. In fact, as humans, we've done everything we can to implode the goodness and beauty by which you have bestowed upon creation. And so, Lord, through your death and resurrection, you are restoring created order, and we get to be a part of that. And we admit, Lord, that we have done things like horrific atrocities with your word, and we have committed things like slavery, and we have done things that have destroyed the character and nature of who you are. But you are a redeemer of all things. You bring all things and make all things whole. And so, Lord, you take what we have destroyed and you resurrect. You rise things from the ashes and you rebuild what is broken. And so, Lord, we ask that in humility you may come and you may restore our broken nature of things and the way that we see the world around us, and that, Lord, you would be redeemed, redeeming and honoring of your creation. So as we close our time in our last song this morning, although we've gone long, Lord, I believe it was for the right reasons. I pray that what you would press on our heart are these truths, these truths that say essentially, Lord, we are all under this common lordship of Christ, that we are called to a reciprocity of relationship by which no one is ever better than another, and that we are part of the brotherhood and sisterhood of all believers that we are one family, united fully and solely in Christ to honor you and worship you and do your will. We are yours, and you are our master. Let's close our time in worship this morning. Thou my best Lord by day.
to mention one announcement, and that is this Wednesday night, we are uh, bringing back our Vine Men's Supper Club. We're going to be meeting at 6.30 um, up at The Lookout, which is a new restaurant, Kicking Bird Golf Club, that is open uh, in Edmond. So we'd love for you to be part of that. That's on Facebook. Ask Don or I, and we'll get you all invited to that group. That's open to any guys that want to come. Walk out of this place, empowered by the Holy Spirit, knowing fully and fully well that God alone is our master and our redeemer and calls us into relationship with one another in which we lay down 